to On Resistance Radio. This is Anton. This is the last show of our five-week series, Hashtag War on the Poor. Today's show is on social war, hierarchy, and alternatives. Do we want to go around and maybe everyone introduce themselves? Yeah. Hello, I am X. Hi, it's J-Ray. Hello, it's Bobby. Good to be here with you today. Okay, and once again, I'm Anton. Just jump right into it. So some solutions people have provided getting money out of politics, taking back the means of production, or revolutionary direct action. Are those solutions going to change white supremacy or hierarchy? Well, I don't think getting money out of politics does. It seems to be one of those single issues that I feel like both conservatives and liberals tend to like focus on and felt like a lot sort of political spaces whenever you bring up anything that has to deal with your own oppression, you get labeled as trying to bring up identity politics or play identity politics, or even, you know, you're trying to play the race card. Those issues don't really address the systemic institutional problems that both capitalism and heteropatriarchy and white supremacy persist. To me, what social war is, is the long, ongoing, pre-existing, before my time, before I existed, battle of ideas, battle of people trying to dictate people's lives and impose their particular brand of normalcy on other people. Usually, how oppression works is there is a hierarchy that is imposing on masses of people and people who don't follow that hierarchy either are ostracized, brutal, met with violence or coercion into believing that hierarchy. So when I think about social war, I think about, for example, being a gender non-conforming, racially ambiguous, multi-polyracial person. There's a lot of experiences that intersect. It's hard enough to be black as it is, but it's also even harder to be queer. It's also, you know, other people. It's harder to be both of those things and then undocumented. And then the dynamics that come along with being given these identities, like it, it feels almost as though this isn't something that I constructed. It's something that society has kind of constructed for me. It's an externally impose social category that I am oppressed because of the heteropatriarchy that we're living under, because of white supremacy that we're living under, because of the ableism, I feel as though it's granting certain benefits to to people who don't fit into the role of white or with money or with housing or male at birth. So those are my experiences of or examples of social war. 
Jerry? I think that a lot of the organizing spaces that have arisen in response to systemic problems tend to be still pretty issue-based, where if you want to respond to a particular thing that's happening or particular policy or a particular trend of oppression, a lot of the organizing requires that you kind of sideline your own experience of oppression to focus on what people would term the larger issue of the group. And so I feel like that creates a hierarchy of which oppression and whose experience of oppression we're fighting. And usually the organizing strategy in response to an issue will focus on what whoever the organizers with the most social capital feel is the most reasonable, quote unquote, reasonable way to fight back. And that's when you see a lot of movements getting pushed into phrases like getting money out of politics, which is a way to avoid saying the word capitalism and explaining how capitalism infiltrates government. The government is run on a capitalist model. A lot of even leftist organizing that rejects getting money out of politics still expects people to identify with their class under capitalism or with certain articulated, theorized explanations of oppression instead of encouraging people to articulate their own experience of oppression or to share their own experiences or to make spaces accessible for people to bring their own issues and kind of create like a larger space to support the intersectional struggle against oppression instead of us having to kind of mediate our identities and silence speaking about what it's like to try to organize against this entire, this huge kind of system that by its very nature kind of makes our struggles uniform and tries to take out our individual experience of these things. And the individual experience of these things doesn't take away, I think, from our collective struggle. I think that we need to find space for people to be able to express themselves without calling them out for identifying with the social categories imposed by oppression. I don't think people want to identify with just these categories that have been imposed by oppressive dynamics. I think that people are trying to speak from their places of experience. I feel like in a lot of the organizing circles, what's happened historically, historically, since, you know, the civil rights era, since people have been struggling against systems of oppression, a lot of times, uh, a lot of these circles end up replicating a lot of the oppressions that they're actually trying to speak out against by either taking, taking power underneath heteropatriarchy. By doing that, you're kind of replicating the same oppressions to people who are experiencing oppression, who are male identified. There are male identified people out there who experience oppression under patriarchy. You know, they are still oppressed by it um, or they're socialized underneath its, its, uh, its violence. To me, intersectional resistance is resistance that wholly encompasses all of LGBTQ I plus black resistance, femme resistance, black, brown, Asian, unity, the destruction of capitalism, and the elimination of hierarchy. And the reason that intersectional resistance is important is because in another future world that we created because the resistance was successful, right, there's absolutely nothing stopping us from recreating the systems of oppression that we were fighting against in the first place. Intersectional resistance is important because in the post-revolutionary society, we want to see new systems being developed. Bobby? Single issues are so problematic because all of these problems are really intersectional and there's no way for you to really address any of these things without 
actually getting to the root with them and then addressing the different forms of hierarchy. When you think of unions and how they were started here in America and how it was inaccessible to blacks, they were actually created to protect white supremacy and to exclude black workers. And so I think all of these things really, it's important if you're going to address any of these single issues that you address them with an intersectional lens. I think that I'm kind of talking about history a lot. When it comes to folks who have organized in the past, I think it's imperative that we do listen to their experiences, but that doesn't mean that their experiences outweigh other people. There's a lot of focus on an elongated amount of experience versus depth of experience. And those those things are varied by person, by social category or descriptive political identity. There are a few Black Panthers in the past who have dabbled in anti-authoritarian or anarchist principles after experiencing the Black Power movement in the 60s and 70s because they saw the flaw in the hierarchy of the organization. So when we talk about combating social hierarchies, we're not only talking about institutionally, well, I'm not only talking about institutionally, and so many people who practice anti-authoritarian tactics, they uh, extend their systemic intersectional analysis through an anti-authoritarian lens. What I mean by that is it's also good strategy in terms of when we are combating systems of oppression to really horizontalize these spaces and take into account everybody's voices, everybody's experiences, and not give any more or any less clout to people who are participating in these movements. Because in the past, a lot of the leaders of movements, leaders of rebellion, what happens when they're cut down. So we're not only using this as a form of transgressing all social relations, which even leftists and Marx would say that that's where revolution comes from. It comes from transgressing every single social relationship that we have so we can get past the oppressions that we're, or past the hindrances of liberation. It's also a tactical strategy. If you cut off, cut out these figureheads, it gives these systems of oppression, it gives the COINTELPRO kind of more more leverage against people who are organizing when certain figureheads have a certain amount more power than other people who are organizing within resistance. J. Ray? There is a huge call. There's mounting tension for people to get involved, to struggle alongside each other instead of appealing to the mechanisms of government, like the political process that has been crafted for us to give us some sort of symbolic participation to keep us feeling like this is somehow a representative body, which it isn't, and I feel like we're going to touch on representative logic later in the show. The people that are so often shaping these strategies, these spaces, like when we talk about systems of hierarchy and solutions, the solutions that we're being forced, or not forced, but we're being kind of told constantly we're between a rock and a hard place, and like our, none of the decisions are good, and none of our strategies are good, and we just have to choose which struggles to sacrifice right now to focus on the larger picture. And it's always this rhetoric of what is what we're capable of doing now, and it is usually limited, and the strategy is usually created by particular figureheads and movements. So when we talk about 
how we need accessible spaces. And by accessibility, we need them to be physically accessible for people who are disabled by society. But also we need them to be horizontal in terms of creating the strategy, being participatory, not weighing certain people's experience over the perspective of other people. Because if we want people to dismantle capitalism, we have to make that accessible. And right now what we have is really elitist leftist rhetoric that kind of says you have to speak about capitalism in this particular way, using this particular language, using this particular theory and particular methods such as dialectical materialism. (laughs) Or if you come, this is about the workers, and the workers come to symbolize this kind of entire narrative of how we're supposed to wage our struggle against capitalism that might not actually be accessible to people talking about their immediate experience with capitalism. Because when I think about capitalism, it makes more sense for me to critique capitalism from a critique of hierarchy. As a worker, I am put into this system of hierarchy, I think it's more helpful and more accessible to critique capitalism as relationships of hierarchy and domination instead of expecting people to identify completely with some sense of class that comes from a certain model of political education. And so we have like a lot of people who have a lot of experience who think that there's a certain way to raise revolutionary energy and they expect people to kind of adopt this class analysis that has been kind of circulated and like regurgitated and yeah expanded upon for decades now and we're not really discussing how relevant it is to quote unquote the workers or the the humans human beings who are trapped in this environmental catastrophe but i really think that the difference between other Eurocentric ideologies that have come to combat oppression and colonization and anarchism is that like we have to wage our struggle intersectionally now because the means we use to create revolutionary energy has to reflect what we desire in, in transforming this structure. So if we want to have equality or liberation or empower all voices to speak, we have to stop saying that only certain people are leaders or only certain people can moderate a meeting or only certain people can speak to how their experience about capitalism is if they access the theory or the academy or or whatever. And so anarchism challenges this idea and wants to make spaces more accessible and more horizontal so that more people can shape the narrative so that more people are then invested and empowered to shape their own desired outcome away from this structure of hierarchy and oppression. So instead of coming together and following the scripts and following the leader and then eventually being free, we have to come together and challenge the hierarchy within the spaces that we are in and that is how we will create liberatory potential. We've just been using horizontalism, and I just kind of wanted to find it at least what it means to me. I see horizontal as a way of trying to approach relationships like in a consensual way, and then also seeing yourself as equal to all life on this earth. And Jessica, like going to what you were talking about in regards what it sounded like leftist politics, it reminds me of our show we had earlier, Decolonizing the Left. A lot of leftist politics seems like inaccessible because of you're still going by these writings, mostly white men from years ago. The idea as if Marx created these ideas, kind of ridiculous. And to see people who consider themselves to be anti-authoritarian or fighting against white supremacy, but then quoting Marx all the time just really frustrates me. Yeah, that's a good point. And I kind of am wondering how accessible is radical direct action in terms of an intersectional resistance that includes all these things, X and then J Ray? I believe that radical direct action, as long as it's used collectively, 
Because I don't believe that direct action is an exclusively radical tactic. Liberals have been using direct action to create policy changes and reforms for their own benefits. So do authoritarians. Authoritarians also use anti-authoritarian tactics to spread their kind of agendas or messages. As a tactic, I think radical direct action is something that really gets to the root at halting specific oppressions that are happening or meeting people's needs directly. We've given examples of radical direct actions like creating temporary autonomous zones and not allowing the police to come into them when people are under a lot of fire from the police or a lot of exploitation or brutality from the police or also liberating areas to hold social forums and to create feeding spaces for people who don't have the means. They need their means met. And I feel like these direct actions will get people's needs met. However, a lot of people are extremely saturated by government policy, by school saying that the only way you can get, you can access certain materials isn't through community power. They're not teaching that in school. The government does everything it can to tell you that you need the government in order to prolong your life, in order to meet your needs. Instead of taking direct action ourselves, we're often caught in the desperate attempt to have to operate into these neighborhood assemblies or these avenues of city hall or congress we have to go to congress to demand for these needs and then these needs will be given to us when in actuality we can try to get resources ourselves and render the the positions these these positions irrelevant i shouldn't need a middleman to get bread i shouldn't need a middleman to get water i shouldn't need a middleman to get a decent education. It could work with people collectively, horizontally to function as a community, as a net. Jaren? Direct action uh, at this point because of the highly policed state that we live in, taking a street and marching is a direct action. You risk police brutality, blockading, maybe not capital directly, but the stream of people that are going to support capital, like for, oh, five minutes might be inconvenienced, and this is seen as disruptive. So I do want to acknowledge that it's very true that liberals will try to control the actions of activists or agitators that fall outside of their agenda setting, but they will also capitalize off of the energy and the angst that direct actions create, while at the same time maybe criminalizing the people taking them or bullying and silencing and shaming the people taking tactics they disagree with. And there's this also hierarchy of tactics in the left. But in terms of accessibility, I think that there's an interesting conversation when it comes to consent. When we come together, I think that we should consent ourselves as interpersonal peoples and interdependent peoples that are part of a larger collective effort in terms of how we want to act and how we want to agitate. And that should come down to consent amongst ourselves. The contradiction comes in where when we're all taking collective action and people 
think that since there is this perception of a hierarchy of tactics, that they can, for all intents and purposes, replicate policing to stop other people from taking tactics. There are things that arise at the time of in the street when someone is being targeted by police and you see that happening and you happen to be in the area and there's a tactic, it's called de-arresting. It's very controversial and it's, of course, it's illegal um, and it's to prevent targeting. But one person might make that decision autonomously in the moment to take that risk and to take that action. And there is no consent involved in that situation. But there also is no consent involved in the targeted arrest. So there's no consent in terms of our like conditions of oppression. Um, so to the best of our ability, we can try to create consensual relationships in terms of how we act. And for those of us who reject the hierarchy of political government in terms of how we're being told to petition for change. We don't consent to that. So when we're consistently being told that that is what we have to consent to, you know, we have to look for other ways. And I feel like we talk about the hierarchy of tactics and we replicate this in our opposition to the state too. But in terms of revolutionary direct action, like we can take tactics like Going to a liberal meeting or going to a space and opening up that space and insisting on horizontalism, like that's a direct action that has less risk than like open confrontation with the police in the street. And because we have different risks and different privileges assigned by society, we can't take the same risks. Like for some people who experience the racist injustice system and are targeted by the cops just for the color of their skin, they don't have to stage political civil disobedience to get targeted by the police. We all have different risks, so how do we support each other in taking direct action? I think that direct action is accessible to people based on consent on where they're at and like their own conditions and their own experience of conditions. And so what we have to do is we have to challenge the hierarchy of tactics that says that everyone has to take one tactic at the same time. What we need to do is shift to a perspective of a diversity of tactics, which is that there isn't one right moralistic glorified way to fight the state. There are many ways. And all we can do is, hey, if we don't agree with each other, that's okay. But to the state, we're going to show full solidarity. To the government, we're going to show full solidarity. I can disagree with that tactic taken over there and I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to leave or change my role. But I'm not going to go snitch on that person and I'm not going to go online and tag them in a Facebook photo. So solidarity doesn't mean agreeing. It doesn't even mean you consent. It means like I'm not going to consent to police terrorism against these people or any type of violence. I brought up the subject because to me, anarchism is slightly inaccessible. Similar to the term hipster, anarchist is a term that has been applied to me. It's not something that, I mean, I have taken it at times when it has suited me or suited my needs or suited my thoughts, but it's definitely something that was applied to my body based on what I wore and based on the way I wore my hair. I just wanted to bring up a little bit of inaccessibility with those groups. Representative logic is what compels people to associate youth or POC or women with violence, hatred, or ignorance, or any sort of negative stereotype associated with those oppressed groups. And people will often associate me with violent punk rockers or violent anarchists. But personally, my own form of anarchism has been my garden, as I like to see things grow. A word that our collective uses to describe like patriarchal anarchists is manarchists and a word that sometimes they use to describe themselves is anarcho-capitalists so sometimes I call them manarcho-capitalists but manarcho-capitalists often push for radical direct action like taking the streets without having collective responsibility for 
getting people's consent. And I feel that manarchists also tend to lack awareness for intersectional resistance. I've heard very often manarchists tell me that they hate Islam and they hate people who practice Islam because Islam is a religion and like all religions, like people who practice Islam should be destroyed or whatever. Where's the intersectional critique of your own position? Manarchists tend to participate in shaming or bullying or other types of sexual harassment. Definitely checking patriarchy on the streets is something that I personally feel has been lacking in anarchist or anti-authoritarian movement. Can I really call the movements that I've participated in anarchist movements? Can I really call the movements that I've participated in anti-authoritarian? Bobby? I choose to identify as an anarchist. Even though understanding, knowing that anarchism has existed within my community before anarchism was even a word. But because the word is so demonized by the state and its association of like anti-state, anti-authoritarian, pro-horizontalism, pro-equality, it makes me frustrated the way that anarchism is is projected in mass media. Recently, if you can Google the trailer for um, the, <laughs> that one movie. Oh my God, what is it called? The, the Purge, Purge The Purge 2. It's so bad, anarchy. it's so bad. And all of it is like an anarchy, it's chaos. And you know, and it's white dudes with mohawks. And that is not anarchism, you know? Like that is not all of anarchism. Mm. Like I am anarchism. And, and why I really appreciate anarchism because of the horizontalism is because it allows space for me to be able to challenge that. You know, I can go into other spaces that aren't horizontal, and I can't challenge the leader. I can do so, but I will be removed from that space. The intention of horizontalism is really what I appreciate, and I do think that I have experienced things for people who anarchists in name only, but I feel like that's like the difference of when we talk about horizontalism as a lifestyle versus a tactic. Kind of going back to how is direct action, which is like one of the parts of, I guess you could say, of anarchism accessible, I would say yes. Actions are, to me, are very layered. So for example, like shutting down a bank. Maybe you're not comfortable going inside the bank and shutting it down. Maybe that's not where you're at because of different degrees in, in which way you would be more prosecuted. But you could be comfortable standing outside that bank, passing out literature about capitalism and, and you know, letting people know that people are shutting down the bank and this is why. And so I feel like because of horizontalism and because of consensus, it allows for space for people to be honest about where they're at and for us to kind of mutually kind of assess like and respect people's different various degrees of risk. And also part of anarchism to me also is like respecting autonomy and going back to J-Ray saying, I feel like autonomy is really important, but autonomy connected to solidarity. And so it's important for me as an individual to have my autonomy. To me, I would rather do things collectively, but still have respect and the sake for my own self-decisioning to be able to also be respected. Next on stack is X. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about particular political philosophies, political practices, like anarchism, and I'm just going to reflect on the things that I've come across in my learning of what anarchism is in relation to autonomy, in relation to socialism, in relation to anti-authoritarianism. I, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is extremely inaccessible in terms of the indoctrination that we face, in terms of the state and state-run institutions literally doing all they can to repress the history of of anarchism within this country, within a lot of other countries. It's really things that you have to dig up to learn about. You don't learn about the Haymarket martyrs and how 
your you received your eight hour work day or you know you you got that from you know people who have who were scapegoated as and seen as terrorists when there was no real evidence to prove that they were in fact people that uh, bombed a particular space and there were there was rebellion in the streets that won the eight hour workday. I mean, it was won some some sort of you know need that people needed immediately because these factories were exploiting and and killing people essentially by people working in them. In any case, since that language and history is very kind of hidden by the people that control the means of information, I've taken that anarchism. Uh, it's essentially, you know, non-state, um, you know, abolish the state, abolish all hierarchies, uh, abolish capitalism, which is the most important one because anarcho anarcho-capitalism doesn't tend to make sense because what are the capitalists trying to liberate themselves other than the fact that they're trying to have more access, individualist access to oppress more people or, you know, do whatever they want with their, their property when uh, the anarchists are inherently against um, the idea of property because the idea of property is, uh, is violence, is theft, it's related to poverty. But I feel like people have tried to separate themselves from some of these words because a lot of the time there's like there's this power in naming and i feel like if you don't have a really good grasp on power and how power is exchanged and where power is you might conflate certain issues of like anarchism and anti-authoritarianism in my understanding with uh, my indigenous ancestors in the tribes that I've studied in their history is that they were, they did delegate specific roles to people that it was inherently uh, anti-authoritarian. So yes, indigenous people, how they practice, how they organized was inherently anti-authoritarian. Uh, was it anarchist? Maybe not because Western anarchism is defined differently. Uh, Eastern anarchism and Southern and Northern anarchism is defined very differently because it's like, you know, people have different practices. And that's the thing about uh, about anarchism. It's that there isn't any particular way. It's really a perpetual reconciliation with, with your social conditions. So you really have to kind of be on your toes when it comes to the things that come your way. And I feel like, you know, recently since... Since third wave anarchism happened um, in like the 90s um, and there were people that were trying to trying to speak to um, anti-authoritarian principles without without being lumped into the category of anarchists, they started calling themselves autonomous. So you have, you know, people who were really expressing their autonomy and that we don't want to relate to a, just another Western ideology or philosophy we want to we want to hold our own this is what it this is what we're actually perpetuate we're perpetuating our our autonomy we're perpetuating our own brand of consent in relation to other people's consent but i fe i do feel like i was going to talk about socialism a little bit and how um all anarchists are inherently socialists um in in the fact that yeah we do want you know the the means 
should be taken for the workers. There sh- we shouldn't have bosses. However, where we disagree is whether it's authoritarian or uh, libertarian. And libertarian is another one of those words that was co-opted by uh, U.S. Um, <clears throat> U.S. power, U.S. right-wing power. Trying it, you know, libertarian is essentially synonymous with anarcho-capitalism, and. Now. Now, now. But when uh, the inception of anarchism came out in the West, there was libertarian socialism and then there was authoritarian socialism. So the anarchists were essentially libertarian uh, socialists who agreed that we we can't just seize the means of power by uh, we can't just seize state power in order to achieve our, our goals. We have to abolish that state power and decentralize power in order to in order to liberate everything, in order to liberate ourselves. I guess to kind of speak on what Anthony, as well as Jay Ray were talking about regarding re- representative logic, I feel that within a lot of anarchism, there's still, there's still a lot of colonization that people have been internalizing. So in order to really understand indigenous resistance and really see the framework of where other people are operating out of the logic of representation. Anarchism, definitely Western anarchism, has to be decolonized. And with a lot of colonization and internalizing that, there's a lot of representative logic that seems to happen. But I feel feel like with representative logic, it kind of tends to homogenize people into particular... Uh, groups and sets and categories and doesn't really allow for interdependence, doesn't really allow for people to see their interrelatedness. It just kind of conflates and homogenizes people. While internalizing colonization, you're also internalizing codependency on specific structures, on specific ideas, on specific uh, identities that have been imposed. And by internalizing this codependency, it doesn't allow masses of people to really consider their own autonomy, to really recognize that, hey, Actually, the president of the United States, since he hasn't been through the experiences that I've been through, since he's not queer, since he's not black, since he's not disabled, he cannot possibly logically represent me. That makes absolutely no sense. My comrade that's sitting to my left, he cannot logically represent me through my holistic experiences. That is the logic of representation that comes from a male-dominated society that comes from colonization. So we're just yeah asking people to extend their particular analysis in an intersectional way and in an anti-authoritarian way because a lot of the times liberals use an intersectional analysis, but it falls short. Next on stack is Jerry. We're using the word anarchism more than we've ever used it word. before on this show. And a lot of the ideas, you know, of challenging authority and not using liberalism and not trying to seize power, but to decentralize it and locally fight. I feel like all of those, some of us feel like those are and do reflect anarchist principles. But the reason why we're talking about it so much is because it really does come down to abolishing authority and abolishing intersecting forms of hierarchy. And I would want to clarify that there are some 
forms of voluntary hierarchy, people would say, that doesn't have so much authority or that the authority would dissolve away, such as parenting or teaching. So when you start out from a place of knowledge and you're like raising children, people would say that's a hierarchical relationship and you can't abolish that. But I think that you can. I think that you can collectivize community space. And if you make spaces participatory and accessible, then children would just be participants and they would we would be able to dissolve the aspects of that relationship that could be coercive or authoritative. So I just wanted to note that. But when we talk about hierarchy, I'm just going to run through some definitions that, of what that means to me. So power over others, not participatory spaces. It's basically a structure of power. I feel like we just accept hierarchy as an everyday commonplace, but it's actually just a structural creation. So if it's just one structure, there are ways that we can have other structures that are not hierarchical, that don't assign power and authority, keep people from sharing skills because then more people would have access and that would challenge the people in power. Just this idea that we can share power um, or share empowerment and that there wouldn't be concentrated centralized power. And patriarchy are pretty related because patriarchy basically says that there's, you know, male-bodied people are the head of the household and therefore the head of society. And so they, therefore they get to represent everyone else's interests and everyone else's interests get silenced or mediated through the patriarch. And so by challenging, politics isn't much different. I mean, we can't really say maybe some people have gotten more representation or more access in the political spectrum to challenge the idea that it's mostly run by white males, but the policy and the laws that shape the system were still created by white males with property, owning interests, and that included people um, and enslavement. So in contrast to hierarchy, I feel like when it comes to anarchist principles and horizontalism and creating voluntary relationships that don't replicate coercion or oppression, a lot of people critique that by saying, well, we can't have horizontalism with our oppressors and we can't have horizontalism with the people in power. We're going to need to have hierarchy over them in order to to change things. And I don't agree with that. I feel like the difference between anarchism and most other philosophies that want to change our current economic conditions is that it isn't just focused on economic conditions. It's focused on um, also ending our social conditions, which are oppressive. And so that's why we use this term, the social war, because a lot of our spaces are infiltrated by and run still by social capital. So yes, this is a class war and this is we are in an economic war, but we're also in a social war. When I, as a female-bodied person, and also more glaringly towards gender non-conforming or trans individuals, especially trans women of color, go on the street. I may be going to work, going to participate in the economy, but I'm still going to face social oppression, whether I'm in that workplace involuntarily or whether I'm in spaces socially that are voluntary or whether I'm in organizing spaces that are voluntary. There's still subtle and not so subtle sexism and microaggressions and macroaggressions. And because of this, we need to be super critical and rooting out how we replicate these behaviors. And I feel like we don't want to recreate power hierarchy models and we don't want to centralize power because people think that we can change our conditions if we just seize government, which is this hierarchical apparatus that uses violence. But it wouldn't change society at all. It would just change who our managers are. And to, for society to change, we need to open up spaces and liberate spaces to make them more participatory so that people can make decisions locally about what affects their lives. And that takes that will take the power out of the control of the government. And then it's just our task to, 
yeah, we're going to have to create force to disempower and discredit and destabilize the government. And for those leftists who think we need force to dismantle capitalism, but that they can seize the government to do that, the force that's going to be required to destroy capitalism is going to be the force that we need to destroy the state because the state's henchmen, the police, are going to protect the capitalists and are going to protect the capitalist means of production. So if we're going to amass power, quote unquote, or empowerment in our communities and inspire people to take direct action and defend themselves, we have to do it simultaneously. We have to simultaneously abolish the state as we're abolishing capitalism. We can't do one and then hope to dissolve power and empower people later. The only way we will do it is if people are empowered now. Basically, when you think of like a war, think of a war that is fought on multiple fronts. The social war is the front of the war that you interact with when, let's say, you are organizing and now you are interacting with four or five patriarchs in one room and they tell you that they don't operate on consensus. So if they outvote you, then your voice doesn't get heard in their group. They do that by, let's say, those four men are friends, you know, so they have a prior relationship with each other. These are all things that you could see as tactics, and that's why we use the word social war to describe what we are experiencing. We've kind of been talking about managing our own political autonomy individually as we participate in some of these organizing groups that have their own ways of organizing and they might not operate on consensus or they might. And maybe we don't agree with the group consensus. So how does our political autonomy fall into that? Basically, structures of hierarchy always protect people in positions of power um, from ever being called out or held accountable to the group or to anyone who's experiencing oppression at that moment. Next on sec is Bobby and then X. I would say, again, horizontalism and then also just rolling deep to meetings is always nice with other people who are trying to the assembly. X. The issue I have with institutions that exist currently are because they've existed since the inception of this country, which this country is based on genocide and racism and sexism and ableism and citizenship, which is basically granting uh, whites privileges to inherently be the citizens of this this country that uh, removed an existing uh, community, an existing organizing culture for their own profit. So creating our own institutions to the point where it doesn't become too normalized and too dogmatic. I like that as an attempt to combat the existing institutions, creating things for ourselves. And that's the thing we're trying to create for ourselves. We don't want our resistance to be shaped by our oppressors. And to reflect on Bobby saying, we might want to roll deep and have affinity with certain individuals under the same um, like-minded experiences or political philosophies. I would say that there's so much internalized oppression that people go through. People have been internalizing oppression for generations. You know, we inherit that oppression from our mothers, from our fathers, from people of color. We learn about this and we we really are pointed to our place within the society and what power we have in the society. So a lot of the times you see these problematic dynamics replicate themselves in these organizing spaces where a lot of these really, really charismatic figureheads will actually utilize people's internalized oppressions against them with bullying, with making people feel like they're ineffective or less radical. I don't, I don't find camaraderie in that. I don't see by taking advantage of my internal oppressions that helping me to empower me. I, I feel like that in itself is a hierarchy, you know, and we've talked about it before where the revolutionaries of the past have really 
taking advantage of that hierarchy, like J-Wade was saying, creates a culture, chasm of apologism that people aren't even aware of, that they end up apologizing for these figureheads because of the work that they do. It dismisses any sort of accountability that should be taken, especially when it comes to abuse, physical or emotional. Yeah, I would just say that in combating these generations of internal oppression, there really has to be an understanding from within ourselves that this has been a long time coming. People that are realizing that everything that they've learned about in school, everything that they've been taught, we're all kind of going through just layers and layers of of subordination. We're all just kind of, we're born into and internalizing these hierarchies. So it takes a lot to, to deconstruct what we internalize. Since it's culture, it's so habitual. It's, a, it's such a habit that men don't realize that they're being sexist when they're being sexist, that white people don't realize they're being racist when they're being racist. And that is what we talk about in terms of social war. It's when I'm on the street, I'm kind of quoting Laverne Cox uh, a little bit, but I've felt these similar experiences where somebody's like, are you are you an N-word? And then like another person on the left of them is like, no, they're a B-word. And it's like... <laughs> What, what great choices that we have that's very intersectional. It's like you're either a B word or you're either an N word. And those are both dehumanizing, dehumanizing categories to label people as. So I just like to think about where this war is at as, as of now, because with what I call fourth wave anarchism, with a wave of global revolt for autonomy with the recent Occupy movement is it's really a war of ideas. The tensions of the long existing social war are really, really coming about. And at the same time, the the very fighting ground is being destroyed. The very earth that we're having this battle on is also being destroyed. So we have to get over the social dynamics that privilege certain groups over another. We have to consider that in relation to our relationship with the earth because, yeah, time is running out. J-Ray and then myself and then Bobby. It's interesting to talk about this on the radio or in this broadcast because these are very real dynamics that we've all faced in practice. Whatever the dynamics of hierarchy and control over a space, underneath those dynamics, there is a disagreement of ideas. There is a disagreement of power, of different ideas of power, whether it should be valued and idolized and seized or whether it should be checked, dismantled and decentralized and made accessible. The structures of hierarchy and of social capital and of figureheads and of patriarchy and of intergenerational ageism is a control of the dialogue so that we can't even get to the point of having this discussion that is very, very needed about power and strategies. There's this fear that you're threatening the agenda of a group by being in energy in space with people. You can kind of try to communicate and deal with these things. So I used to feel like if there was bullying and people exercising their social capital to control a space and to keep people in their place and keep the strategy from being questioned, that I could engage that and I could talk to them. And I was in a place where I felt empowered to still put my body in that space and put my energy in that space and kind of de-escalate that and try to open up the space. But then I realized that to check social capital, you have to use social capital in order to check the dynamics that are evolving in open space. And so I kind of started withdrawing. It hasn't been effective. Like, I don't know what's effective to combat this because I do find that 
if we can create our own spaces that are horizontal and that are accessible, that is a really good alternative. But we still need opposition to the spaces that have fallen to authoritarianism or fallen to liberalism and who are inaccessible. There's just certain figureheads that have a reputation of not being held accountable. Because I think what's turned me off more from most organizing spaces isn't that someone has problematic behavior. I feel like we all, like I have problematic behavior, you know, like we've all, we're all working on deconstructing these things or that's the benefit of the doubt I give to people in organizing circles and I can't do that anymore. I can't give that benefit of the doubt because there's a culture of apologism. People will step up, shame you, silence you from naming dynamics that are happening. So it's not even the person with the problematic behavior that is the most disempowering. It's the culture surrounding that person that makes it completely, like you're going to be attacked if you call up these real-time dynamics. And they'll use the rhetoric of struggle and revolution. It's like, we all feel this sense of urgency of rising fascism. And because of that, people will try to silence critiques of good quote-unquote organizers. And that's what I mean by social capital, is people that have created reputations in organizing culture. And organizing culture just replicates hierarchy. Organizing culture is a society of its own. Like, the society of organizing, you know, has its own social currency and has its own rate of exchange. If we're talking about being anti-capitalist, we need to critique what that rate of exchange is in those spaces because they've turned a lot of people away. We could be working together. Even if we don't reach consensus together, if we open up participatory spaces, then everyone would go there and then based on affinity, people would act how they want. Like, we don't have to act all in the same way, but we can't work together when we're not talking about intersectional oppression. Next on stack is Bobby. Everything that we're talking about and horizontalism and its effect or what it can have, I guess, for the movement, it just... It makes me think of in like the intersectionality of it. I want to overthrow the state. I want to abolish capitalism. I want to destroy white supremacy. And and I want to eradicate heteropatriarchy. And for all of these things to happen to me, the strategy has worked has been horizontalism. And when I think about horizontalism, horizontalism as, as a lifestyle, I feel like it's the only way to approach it. I've seen where people have seen it as like a tactic. And when it's a tactic, it's something you can remove yourself from. So you can only do it when it suits you, which isn't really being a horizontal. And so when we think of the systems in which we have placed now, which are very hierarchical, it makes it so that you do have to challenge these hierarchical organizations as well because there are where people are naturally going to go to. Uh, In regards to representation, I think people see representation in different ways. I will say that kind of what I was saying before about how you, when you think of anarchism, you think that it's just, you know, white guys with mohawks. That turned me off. That made it seem really inaccessible to me and it seemed something I couldn't be. And if I would have known about black anarchists before, I would have seen or read more black female anarchists. It would have been something that I would have wanted to draw too. So I do feel like representation is important. It just can't be the only thing well i think that what the representation kind of does to people because it's i for one am still forming an opinion on my own political philosophy ideology i definitely consider myself anti-authoritarian but i hesitate to use i understand or define my practice as anarchist. So I'm anarchist in practice but not in necessary political philosophy 
my understanding is it's very much the antithesis of representation. The reason why they chose the flag to be black is because black was all of the colors at once. And the reason why there wasn't an image on any of the flags was because there was no representation. It was literally the antithesis of that. It was that we don't need any borders. We don't need any nation. We want to liberate ourselves from being confined under rigid identity. I think what draws a lot of oppressed people to anti-authoritarianism or to anarchy or autonomy or, yeah, anarchism is its inherent anti-oppression uh, analysis. Anybody that has faced oppression can, can really practice uh, these principles. And there's a lot of there was a lot of horizontal practices you can actively use to make decisions. And consensus is something that's been debated on for quite a long time. It's important to see the effectiveness of consensus. Consensus is horizontal because it really kind of as a strategy it helps relay everybody's point across it helps get everybody's feedback it helps elaborate and create amendments to certain decisions that would have not been elaborated or amended if voting you know happened so like we opt into electoral processes a lot of the times but where's the elaboration yeah it takes a lot of time and that's the thing people don't people are like oh well we want we don't necessarily want efficiency or want to consider everyone. We just need to make a decision when I will admit that consensus, it takes a while, but everybody's voice is being heard. Decisions are elaborated upon. It requires a lot more horizontality versus verticalism, which is inherently a hierarchical, which I would say that, yeah, it might be more quick and efficient, but so is fascism. If you have dictators telling you what to do, like, yeah, you're going to come up with a decision uh, fairly quickly because you have to listen to what they have to say. You're dictated by what they say. Your actions are dictated by what they want. So it is quicker. It is. You, know, you do have a, a dictatorship that's telling people what to do. And then to consider a want to abolish hierarchy as something that's juvenile. I've been called juvenile pretty much my entire life, even as an adult. And it's interesting that people who are authoritarians would call people who want to abolish a governing body that people are dependent upon, that they would call that juvenile, when in fact they want to abolish those like large positions of, of power that dictate their their lives when historically patriarchal structures have already dictated the lives of others. I don't put all of my trust into one particular philosopher. I see it in a very spiritual kind of way because you have all of this text from political organizers or theorists or philosophers or just regular Joes and Schmoes from the past that you're getting information from. I see that on a very spiritual level, so I don't really see the point in elevating any one particular Joe Schmo, organizer, philosopher, political person over another, I see it more useful to take all of the strategies of the past and recreate what they have to say, but take some of the best ideas and use those to strategize an oppositional resistance culture to organize 
a trans-feminist, intersectional, anti-oppressive revolt against the oppressions that is imposing upon us. I just don't think that taking on the philosophy of a cisgendered white male is going to is going to completely liberate me. And I also don't think that creating an entire economic system based off their philosophy is also combating white supremacy. Okay, next on stack is J-Ray. Horizontalism and the abolition of hierarchy challenges a focus on and a reliance on leadership and opens up opportunity for everybody to take responsibility and to take collective responsibility and to create responsibility for themselves. And horizontalism has an emphasis on um, process and the spaces we create and the dynamics we create instead of idolizing the decision that is created or the decision maker. The decision is actually a byproduct of a process that is opening up the conversation to more input and ideas. So then the end result or quote-unquote decision is actually more participatory. People participated in creating that. So it doesn't have to be enforced. It was just participated in. So now people are invested in seeing through what they created with a group of people. I really feel like anarchism is communization in practice currently. We don't have to have a workers vanguard party or like some central leadership for us to create change. Uh, We actually can do that ourselves and by decentralizing our relationships now. But, you know, there are accusations against a lot of anarchists who do speak out like of being lifestyle anarchists. And I just want to address that because we've said the word lifestyle a lot today in terms of how we have been taught to reproduce and to act as a mode and a mechanism of production and reproduction of this society and this social connections and social relationships and social body that protects and perpetuates power relations within and outside of the established economic order or disorder. And so that's a constant process of deconstruction, unlearning within ourselves, and that requires us to significantly alter how we invest, and these are the capitalist words we have, time and energy into our lifestyle. Not just to focus on consumption or harm reduction, but an emphasis on what our method is, what our practice is, what energy we're lending, and towards what kind of structure. Anarchism is an emphasis on what we practice now. What we create is important, but how we create it will determine what we create. Challenging these stereotypes about the philosophy named anarchism, that it's disorganized or that it's chaotic. It's very, very highly self-organized. But it is an idea that has a lot of heat around it and a lot of demonization and a lot of misinformation that's being spread. And that makes sense because it is an ideology that completely challenges the idea of a need for government. So it's in the government's interest to completely demonize and challenge and create a narrative of what people think it is. And personally, I use the word anarchist kind of as a tactic to create oppositional energy. People say you can build the new and the shell of the old, but I feel very tainted by the old. Like I feel very much produced by my surroundings. So I just feel like what we have is the intention towards horizontalism. Mm-hmm. And so for everyone who thinks that like it's not achievable and it's not possible, maybe that's true because of how you've been produced, but why aren't you trying would be my question. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. These are the things that we try to do in practice is be horizontal with each other. We are a collective. We are going to continue to have discussions with people who we've been in community with 
and I participate in a collective called Comida No Bombas. And we are going to have a Treke event on April 25th. Try to have our collective events on the last Friday of every month. If you are living in the Boyle Heights community area and you would like to experience with them the Treke, it's like a gift exchange. You bring resources and exchange resources or sometimes you get things just it's kind of like a free market style replicated from uh, what happens in South America. If you would like to experience a dialogue that we are going to facilitate in the area, please come out to Mariachi Plaza on April 25th at 1 p.m. Yeah, hope to see you there. Okay, thank you everyone for listening. Special thanks for listening to us on our SoundCloud. Catch the next show on Sunday. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Tumblr, follow us on Instagram, or email us at unresistanceradio at gmail.com. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I got something to say I will fall